everyone. This is Caleb, and I'm so honored that you've decided to join me on the Learner's Corner podcast today. Today, I'm honored to be joined by Trevor Strunk, and I'm talking with him about his book that came out last year, Story Mode, and the subtitle is Video Games and the Interplay Between uh, Consoles and Culture. You know, here on the Learner's Corner, there's really two things that drive a lot of what we do. Um, And the first one is this, is that we truly believe that we can learn from anyone and from everyone and from anything and from everything, which is why uh, we're talking a little bit about video games today and what we can learn from them and some of the things that we could take away. And uh, yeah, we'll we'll get into that a little bit. Uh, But the other thing is that we want to create a safe place to have difficult conversations as well because uh, you've probably gone throughout life and you've realized, man, I can't talk with anything about, (laughs) or I can't talk with uh, anyone about just any old uh, subject. And so that's what we aim to do here on the Learner's Corner podcast. If you've been listening for a while, I would love to hear from you. The best way to reach out to me is learnerscornerpodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear any ideas or things that you're curious about or want to learn about uh, as well. Now, let me tell you a little bit about uh, Trevor. So Trevor is the host of the No Cartridge podcast, a progressive podcast that criti- critically analyzes video games and the conditions of the games industry. He holds a PhD in English from the University of Illinois at Chicago with a focus on contemporary American literature and emergent forms. His writing on video games and other media has appeared in uh, the online Los Angeles Review of Books, Giant Bomb, and so many other places as well. And yeah, and you know, I was just very interested to talk with him about this because I always love the the thing of learning from different subjects of, of I don't know if lessons is the right word uh, that you want to call it, but just things that we can learn from, from different areas and how we can learn about life from uh, things that may not seem as significant as other things. And so that's one of the things that really got me interested in that. And without any further wait, Here is my conversation with Trevor. Well, Trevor, I'm so excited to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today. Well, thanks so much for having me, Caleb. I really appreciate you having me. This This is a treat. I'm not usually... You know, I'm on a lot of like, I think the circle of podcasts I'm usually on are like, uh, we'll have media ones and then there'll be like, you know, some, some politics ones or video game stuff. Very rarely do I get to go on a, like a, a learning sort of like, uh, I don't want to say pedagogy, it kind of makes, puts you in a box, but, uh, yeah, something like, so something like yours. Like I actually, um, I don't talk about this a lot cause it's, it's not usually relevant to the book, but, uh, I, I got my, um, I have my PhD in English and like I, the, I taught in the college classroom. I taught my last semester was actually just this last winter. So I've taught from 2009 to 2022. So a lot of like teaching, learning stuff like that in my background too. So it's, it's kind of fun to have a chance to talk about it in this, in this instance. Yeah. And just as we're getting started, one of the things that I was, uh, you know, really curious to ask you about is, you know, uh, myself included, you know, we, there's people who love video games and then like, mm-hmm. Like you're on a whole nother level of it. Like you have the <laughs> podcast, you know, no cartridge, and then you wrote the book as well, story mode. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
like I would just be curious to hear what what was the thing or the things that led you to go, hey, not only do I love video games, mm-hmm. but I want to spend time figuring out like the impact of video games, the meaning behind sure. video games. So it really came from like a uh, the approach was basically from my academic work. So what I like I I got I played video games a lot as a kid. Um, up through, you know, teen years in college, um, I kind of fell off a little bit. And then I got back into it um, actually around the time uh, I had my first kid because um, I had like an Xbox that I got at some point or another. And um, uh, and like when you for any of your listeners who don't have a kid, uh, you know, like when you have a kid, especially when they're babies, like they take, you know, 15 minute naps. Um, and so their 15 minute naps can be like you know, 15 to 30, whatever, you don't really have a lot of time to use. And so I'd play video games because like, there's really, I couldn't get a lot of work done. I couldn't like start reading a book. Like it was really like, you know, you're so tired. You can only really do one or two things. So I started playing video games and because I was in the middle of my PhD, it was like kind of a natural thing to start connecting those dots, thinking about like, well, like, how do I think about this stuff? You know, within the sort of more serious register of my other work. And I started the project that would become no cartridge then, but really just like that was more so just me kind of writing, blogging about it. Um, and then once I, once I moved to Pennsylvania, back home to Pennsylvania to finish, once I finished my PhD, started the podcast. And that's kind of where like the initial thoughts of like, oh, I wonder what, like, I wonder what these, these games have to do with anything came, went from, you know, let's see if I can think about games in terms of literary criticism to let's see if I can just kind of like think about games in a more serious sort of like sometimes political, often cultural way. Yeah. Do you remember like, what was the, what was the first game that either made you start thinking that way? That's a good question. Um, It's funny. I probably, you know, probably I thought about games that way when I was like, you know, 14, 13, 14, like when I was playing RPGs, like I, I definitely ha- had some, I, some inklings that there were some deep, there was some deep stuff and like, you know, final fantasy seven or, Xenogears or something like that. Um, and I mean, I would, I would still defend that. Uh, a lot of that's though, just like teen enthusiasm, you know? Uh, but, uh, I guess like in terms of like serious, serious stuff, I, you know, I, I sort of started noticing, um, indie games having a moment and, uh, around the time, probably like 2012, 2013, um, like, uh, gone home had come out. Papers, Please was another one that I, I found interesting to talk about. Um, I think the first thing I wrote on was, um, what is that game called? Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't actually all that interesting, it turns out. But it was like the first sort of like, so something about Emily. Uh, but it was, it, was, um, it was a walking simulator. And so I thought that was kind of interesting from, a, from an academic standpoint. Because it was like, well, this doesn't have any of the hallmarks of any of the other video games I've played, right? Like it's, it, it, it doesn't have scores. It doesn't have challenges necessarily like the challenges are purely sort of um i don't know like existential and interpretive it's not like i don't have to do any jumping puzzles or anything right um and so i was like how does this count as a video game and then i started off from there but i think like when i really started getting into the the concept of like what what i was doing in terms of like um uh gaming uh and and criticism and culture and stuff like that uh that really looked more like um probably like the dark souls games like the, when i first played dark souls that was when i sort of clicked in and think thinking like yeah you know this is this is where this is where the actual sort of like rubber hits the road in terms of my particular work mm. well yeah what'd you take away from dark souls 
so that was the first game where I I, I kind of ran up against it and found that my personal experience playing it informed quite a bit of what I thought about the story and what I thought about what was going on. Like usually like as a critic, um, literary critic, I often kind of separate those two things, story and experience, right? Um, and uh, in this case, I, um, I, I just couldn't because Dark Souls has you die over and over and over and over and over again. And uh, it's a hard game, but that sort of like difficulty is actually baked into the experience of the whole thing. Like you can't really play the game without, um, you know, without that element of, of difficulty. Um, and so I, that really got me thinking and really got me kind of like thinking about games in a register that was different than thinking about literature, which is actually like a super important part of the book and stuff too, which is like the, the, the concept of games as sort of like serious art doesn't necessarily mean that you have to then think of it like okay we're, we're you know this is this is games in the way that they're films or games in the way that they're literature you know they have certain elements that are the same thing they're, they're mediums that are trying to express stuff so they're going to share some similarities but you know a game deals with audience participation and the the nature of like you know connection in a way that literature doesn't and that was the first game that i played where i was like okay this is like you know unavoidable that that is the case yeah yeah, can you talk about that a little bit more, like the uniqueness of, you know, stories and impact that video games are able to have, maybe that mm -hmm. other mediums aren't able to have? Yeah, sure. So, you know, this is something that's always a little tricky because, you know, it. I feel like there's a there's a sort of um, essentialism that comes into it where people will say, like, well, are you are you arguing that video games are more important art than than literature or like, you know, are they better than movies or are they like you know, serious in this way or not serious is it's sort of like you know getting past all of that i think is really important sort of saying that video games are a serious project or sort of like a thing that we have to kind of like take seriously um but also that like they might not be as impactful or you know you know uniformly interesting in the same way that we find you know like classic literature or something like that they're, they're you know it's, a, it's an emergent genre emergent medium in a lot of ways it's still very new right um but I think, you know, one of the things that really does make it sort of um, profoundly different than a lot of media is that it does, it requires participation, right? There are some games that sort of test this, right? Like um, you think about something like a, a visual novel um, where really the, re the required participation is clicking ahead to like read the other stuff that's going on. Very rarely you even have to make choices. But even that's sort of a form of participation and like that lack of participation is commenting on the fact that like, you know, it's, it's, it's contingent on the fact that like, yeah, every other game requires participation. So our game isn't, and that sort of differentiates it and makes us think about something else. Right. So that need for the audience to actually like correspond with the author is like super important. No, I mean, like it, it requires you to sort of, it requires the reader or the player to share an, an enormous part of the actual game itself. Right. Um, and while there's literature that encourages you to do that film that encourages you to do that i don't know if you remember there was that black mirror um i don't even remember what it was called now but like there was like a black mirror netflix special that encouraged you yeah. to like pick, pick a I, I never ended up watching it but like i remember it coming out stuff like that exists right like it encourages you to make a decision um but that's always again that's a departure from the norm which is you are a passive observer um and i don't say that in a mean way i you know i spent I don't know, 13 years of my life studying literature. I think literature is phenomenal and important and I love thinking about it. But 
it is a it is more of a passive medium in a lot of ways than video games. And that requirement of activity, you know, I could dismiss the audience when I was a critic in literary criticism because you can you can you can make a claim that the audience isn't important in video games when i found out writing the book you can't do that anymore like you can't ever say that the audience isn't important like they're actually part and parcel of it and that's you know super different yeah i want to go back to something that you said earlier you talked about um the two different ideas of story and experience uh, yeah. and i would just love your thoughts on like teasing those out like how, how are they different from each other how are they similar how do they interact with each yeah. other no, for sure. I think like, you know, this is, it, it really depends on the game. Right. But again, you know, you could even take it to sort of, well, so there's this sort of like the centralized definitions where you say one would be story is what the game is trying to get across. Right. Like it's a kind of like point of view or a tale or like, you know, uh, X leading to Y to Z. Uh, think about it like in the most simple way you can think about it like Mario Brothers and like the Super Mario Brothers is the story of, a you know, an Italian plumber who is trying to rescue a princess from a, a lizard, right? Um, in older games, the difference between story and experience was like kind of more essential because like, I mean, you look at a lot of the older games, especially like older arcade games, the story is really just there as a pretext for the, the experience of the game itself, right? Like no one really cares what the story of Pac-Man is or Galaga is or whatever. Um, I mean, maybe they do, but not as much, right? Yeah. Um, but the, you know, as, as you get more complicated games and complicated stories, you know, you, you get games that are focused dramatically on experience, something like, um, you know, like a lot of competitive games, like, uh, you know, your Call of Duties, especially, particularly the more recent one, Call of Duty, like Warzone, where it doesn't have a single player mode. Um, even, you know, um, Fortnite, although that's a tricky one because there's, there are, um, you know, these campaigns, like sort of like a large storyline and universe and continuity going on there. But these games are primarily interested in you sort of like experiencing them. Minecraft's another one, right? There's story modes in Minecraft, but it is a game about building and experiencing and, and, and doing that. Um, and then there are games that are, you know, much more story driven, right? Where like you know, talking about the visual novel, something like Muramasa, which is a, a popular visual novel, or um, there's a, a one that was sort of went viral a little while ago called Doki Doki Literature Club. Um, a lot of these are Japanese, but there are American ones as well, um, or Western ones as well. Like the 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 idea though is you're basically you might make a few choices, but you're essentially like progressing a story. And the whole point of it, you know, people won't say they a lot of people will say they read visual novels instead of play them, right? Um, but both of these things, like what what I find fascinating about video games is both of these kind of genres, right? I sort of mentioned it with Fortnite. Fortnite has feels the need to bring in a story, right? There's a story being told at any given point. And similarly, in like uh, visual novels, there's an experience, right? There's a sort of like experience of reading it on the computer and interacting with visuals in the way that you would a video game that makes it different. It makes it, a, a, you know, a, its own unique sort of medium specific experience. And I think like, you know, if I were to distinguish them, I'd say story is what the game gives to you as its narrative and experience is what you, the player, bring to that narrative. And then the things that you, you know, individually experience in, in that time. Uh, Far Cry uh, is, is famous for the Skyrim too, like the big open world games, in that you can kind of wander around the world and you'll see like weird stuff happening. Like some, you know, NPC gets attacked by a bear or something. And you're just like, oh, that's that's something I'll remember. Like that, that's part of the game to me. But it's not scripted, right? Like it just kind of... Um, but you know, ultimately those games intend for those, <laughs> those moments to happen to some people, those games intend for the difference in experience. So in that way, you know, 
the 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 sort of like overall global kind of like collective experience of especially popular games like you take Skyrim for instance or Far Cry people will describe them as these random sort of things these the continuity is part of the story for them and not just theirs but things they've heard about you know stories they've heard people friends they've talked to um so yeah I think I think they're really messy to kind of distinguish but only because of the really interesting way that the medium itself functions yeah and I, I would be even more curious to hear what have you learned about story from video games or even in your literary background um, about telling good stories and about getting the most out of stories as well? Yeah, I'll, I'll reveal a little about your process, Caleb. You sent me some questions ahead of time, which is something <laughs> I as a podcast host really should do more. Um, I never do. I, it's the teacher in me. I do Socratic. Like I'm totally Socratic. I yeah. just like I, I wing it the whole time. It, it, it's like very comfortable for me. But um I read this question and I was like, wow, that's like something I've never really thought about. That was a, that was a really interesting question. Cause like, I've never, like, I, I've never put it in those terms. Um, I think what video games have taught me about narrative is, well, I guess, you know, the, there's, there's a couple of lessons. I'll, I'll boil it down to two. The one is that stories can often be told in, you know, ways that might feel uh, embarrassing or um, trivial. Uh, but in fact, are like still really important stories. Um, and you know, this 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 is not just for video games, right? But for a lot of genre fiction. But it's it's all well and good to say that you like genre fiction or you're interested in genre fiction, which every literary critic of all time, well, not of all time, but like any you know grad student at this point is going to tell you, oh yeah, I'm interested in genre fiction. It looks very trendy. Um, it's all well and good to say that, but then you're reading, you know. Red Harvest by Dashiell Hammett, which is a brilliant novel. I've taught it a million times. It's it's great. It's wonderful. It's it's perfect detective fiction. It, it's a perfect detective novel. Like it's it's very easy to like perfect genre fiction, right? It's really easy to like the the pinnacle of it. It's harder when you're looking at something that has like, you know, anime elements, or it's like a, a far flung fantasy story with a lot of like weird architecture and terms and stuff like that. Like things that you start to feel kind of embarrassed about, right? And it's okay to feel embarrassed about stuff. Like, I don't, you know, that's, that's fine. People can feel how they want to feel. But one of the things I've learned from having to take these things seriously, and particularly in the book, having to like unpack it, right? Like actually explain to the reader what these stories are about is that like essentially at, at, at any given time, like essentially in all of these games, there's some sort of core um, interaction happening, right? Um, and the narrative interaction there is like serious and real and like effective and, and it can succeed or fail. It's not like every video game tells a great story, but just the, the quality of the media does not mean that it is like frivolous. And that's something that I thought I knew, but covering video games made me know that much, much more, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, just like I, there's a, I, I play a lot of, um, uh, free-to-play games. I don't really know why, but uh, they've just been into them recently. It's been a pandemic curiosity of mine. Um, and uh, one I started playing is called uh, a Honkai Impact Third uh, or a Honkai Third Impact. Uh, and it is um, on its face, just like a very sort of like, you know, it's a lot of like uh, attractive girls and mechs and like fighting and stuff like that. It's, it's, it's silly. But like, as you play it, there's like the way that the people have written and told this story is like really, really effective. And like, I, you know, you look at the fan base talking about it and they're not super interested in the story. Um, <laughs> like people die, they just, but like, and that's fine. Again, like 
that's part of where the experience comes in, right? Like you, you deal with fan bases when you make video games. That's a specific problem that they and you know TV shows or whatever have. Um, but like, it's fascinating to see like a really compelling story written out, and knowing that like okay, yeah, like maybe like the actual prose here isn't like important, right? Like I'm not going to quote any of this, but like the actual story beats, the methods of doing it, the way that they're kind of like unpacking it. And I guess this is the second thing I've learned about story is that execution can be like just as important as poetry, right? Or like prose or like, you know, effective words. Um, and, and that's something, again, like I totally know from novels. Like I, there are plenty of novels that I love from a formal standpoint. I, uh, the work of uh, Kathy Acker, for instance, I think from a, a language standpoint is like, can be grating and irritating <laughs> even to people who like her like me um from a formal standpoint when you actually have to look at it from like a, like a serious sort of formal element from like thirty thousand feet up this is brilliant right i know this from novels but again like with video games you're sort of looking at the language and you're like oh, this is kind of like bad writing but that's not really ultimately what the point is the bad writing's there but it's also just like a structure of concepts and ideas and 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 i think like that level of execution of, of ideas and like, um, you know, the layering of experience and story and the way that people deal with it. Like even in the most sort of like seemingly frivolous games, you have people who are like masters at doing this. Yeah. Uh, a couple of things that I wanted to ask you from the book that I think go into the narrative that really stood out to me. Um, and I'll just say, you do this with so many different things in here. One of the ones that really stood out to me was you use resident evil as an example yeah. And you talk about the evolution of horror games and how that's been a reflection of society. Mm. And I would just love like you to unpack that and talk about what, what changed and how our, like literally how our fears as a society and as a, as a people morphed. And that was a reflection in the video game. Yeah. So, I mean, this is something that I found really interesting. Like one of the, one of the questions you had for me was like my, my process in writing the book and, and doing this stuff. And like a lot of it, you know, I had these, I had, I had the ideas like, sketched out but like one of the things i found really interesting was like going back and looking at reviews right like looking at stuff like that happened in the moment um 1996 reviews of, of or not 99 reviews of resident evil as opposed to you know retrospectives from 2022 it's just it's fascinating to look at what people were thinking what people were hoping for and you know it's easy to sort of say yeah you know horror is a reflection of our own personal anxieties as a society but then when you look at it and you're like, wow, you know, this zombie game started with a bunch of, you know, FBI agents or whatever, go ATF agents going into a mansion and encountering zombies and you having to sort of like make your way through the mansion without, you know, surrounded and then also just being scared all the time, right? Like you're alone, you're the one human alone amongst like a bunch of unthinking things, right? Like it's, it's, it's a stranger in a strange land kind of instance and you're the last like bastion of society. This is, you know, uh, reflective in many ways. And I'm, I'm not the first person to say this, but it's, it's true. Like it's reflective of a sort of like fear of invasion, fear of globalization, fear of sort of like being the, you know, having you being the sort of like thing that is wiped out. Um, it's a very reactionary fear in a lot of ways. It's a, it's, it's a thing that makes people like, you know, dislike immigrants, dislike, you know, it's, it's, it's the thing that, that harbors a lot of our ugliest uh, actions and, and, and reactions as a, as a people, um, a fear of being sort of like overrun. Right. And these games reflect that, but in reflecting it, they're not condoning it. It's just like, it's a way of looking at it and saying like, look, like, here's what you're fearing, right? Like here's a metaphorization of it. 
Um, and, and that keeps going from Resident Evil 2 to Resident Evil 3. You get like in Resident Evil 2 particularly, you get the the, the mansion, uh, the sort of like old world uh, money of the mansion becomes the kind of like down home city, sort of like town city area that is then overrun. Um, but then right around like, you know, 9-11 is this flashpoint. It happens in first person shooters as well. The first person shooter chapter uh, sort of more dramatically. But in, in the rest, in the, you know, horror chapter as well, you know, right around 2001, right around 9-11, like we start getting this fear of um, not of loneliness, of being like the last person like in a, in a you know, in the world who, who can be human, but of being like utterly surrounded by other people and never being left to be alone right um and you get games like resident evil 4 where enemies are everywhere right you and, and not in the same way right like the the idea of like enemies being everywhere in resident evil 1 is like oh no two zombies can pop out of a door or something right like the same with alone in the dark where like oh gosh like the the monsters or the ghosts are here or whatever um in resident evil 4 they, they're just all over the place it's much more like house of the dead or something where it, it feels it's scary because like you're being overrun get games like outlast where you know you're you're sort of like you hop into a situation and all of a sudden everyone's trying to get you from all sides um the further resident evils right uh resident evil 5 and 6 are uh essentially just like invasion scenarios but being overrun by things that look like people seem like people are probably people and you never get a moment alone right and so it's a really fine distinction, but you're right. Like it totally lines up with this sort of history where like, you know, prior to 9-11, it's this fear of like, what are we in this global marketplace? Who are we? Like everything's changing, everything's, you know, opening up. And then 9-11 happens and we get, you know, the the sort of like world from 2000 or I'm sorry. Yeah, no, no from 2000 to 2008. And then, you know, the financial class in 2008 on, it's this fear of like, oh no, like I'm alone with everyone else in this like in this horrible sinking ship right um and 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 you know anyone can be under attack anyone can be the enemy um again both like extremely both reactions that can produce extremely ugly cultural moments and and cultural actions by people but again reflected by these games to be something a little more um I don't know if I would say productive but cathartic in a kind of way um and Resident Evil 7 is, is a perfect version of this where like it was made pretty recently within the last, you know, four years. And it is like, it takes place in a rundown Southern mansion, but you're there with like these people who are, who have essentially been zombified for lack of a better thought. Um, you get to see their old lives, but it's this decline of the family. Right. And it's like, it's this perfect sort of like moment of late, uh, the late 20, uh, 2010s where like the fear of like losing touch with any kind of like, um, cementing narrative is something that people are you know desperately afraid of uh another thing that i wanted to talk with you about the book is you and you mentioned the first per person mm -hmm. shooter chapter as well and everyone who's listening has probably heard the argument about violence and okay. video games sure. and i absolutely love some of your thoughts on that because it just reframes it reframes a conversation in a different way that we don't tend to think about and i would just love your thoughts on that yeah, this was one that I was like, I, I, you know, you, you come up with these, I, this was my first like book, book that I wrote, right? So like, I came up with a bunch of ideas about like how it would go. And that doesn't always happen. Like you come up with ideas and it's like, oh, geez, I got to rethink this. But like with the first person shooter chapter, it was wild. Like I would come up, like, I know that. So the one that I can think of is I was, and I'll, I'll get back to the beginning, but like the, the one that I can think of was I was, I thought to myself, wouldn't it be great 
if there was, you know, I know Penny Arcade, the 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 famous gamer comic uh, that for a while was like a real zeitgeist of of people who love video games. You know, I know that they talk about Jack Thompson a lot, this lawyer uh, turned, you know, demagogue against video game uh, violence. I wonder if they have a thing where they're just like super glowing about America's army, the the violent video game that was condoned by the government. I was like, that would be funny if that happened, but I'm sure they don't. And I looked it up and they had it. Like they had not only a comic, but like a whole diatribe. It's like, this is amazing. This is perfect. Um, but it, it like in looking that stuff up, it really was kind of a thing where I was like, I wonder if my understanding of this narrative is the same. And looking it up and finding like, oh no, it's like not the same at all. Um, because like violent video games, I think like, you know, we hear a lot about violent video games, particularly surrounding the kind of like cartoonish or outlandish um, video games like Doom, uh, Wolfenstein 3D uh, were the two that were like really sort of uh, they primed the pump for this. Uh, but then also, I think, like, importantly, the Grand Theft Auto games, which are just like, uh, you know, they're 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 just they're out there. Right. Like you're not people will point out the horrible things you could do in Grand Theft Auto, but it's essentially a mafia movie, uh, like taken up to the nth degree. It would be like looking at, you know, the raid films and saying like, it doesn't seem like very nice that we tell kids they could go on a train and like beat up a bunch of people who are attacking them using like jujitsu. Like, yeah, well, probably, I guess like, it's just, it's so, so ridiculous, but those are the games that get the most attention from, you know, say like, I, I found a, I saw a clip the other day of Bill Clinton uh, talking about video games and, and there was one for, you read an ad for the first Guilty Gear, which uh, if people aren't familiar, Guilty Gear is this like long running uh, fighting game series, um, famously difficult, uh, you know, huge professional scene at this point, really neat game. Um, it's just a fighting game, though. It's a brawler, like, you know, it's like, like a 2D fighter, right? Well, 2.5D fighter. But um, uh, there's a clip where Bill Clinton's talking about it in the, 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 the I mean, the game's called Guilty Gear and the, the tagline was kill your friends guilt-free um and he says that he's like kill your friends guilt-free right here and like again like this is just this is like this is such the the an exaggeration right like it's an exaggeration of a, of a, of a particular idea like it's just it's violence taken to the nth degree and that can be a problem right like postal postal 2 like these games are are like really weirdly like politicized and like even like a little racist and wee and strange they're like they're much more complicated i didn't cover them in the book but i could have spent a long time on them but the things that they aren't though are these more military shooters which come which come out before 9-11 it's not like 9-11 happened and they started pumping them out but post 9-11 they become like the standard thing in the marketplace and while you know pre-military shooter supremacy we had a lot of people saying these violent video games are what's causing Columbine. Like these kids don't have a moral compass. All of a sudden when it's reframed as, oh, you're shooting people for America in places where Americans could be fighting, then it is, well, you know, that's not a bad thing. We, we like that. Like, no one's going to speak out against that. And in fact, like even Jack Thompson, the famous sort of like demagogue against violent video games has nothing bad to say about, about the Call of Duty games. It like, has very little bad things to say about any of them. Um, you know, I think like the most he he's ever said is like maybe there was one where you could play as the Taliban and they took that out. Like it it is it is one of those things where there is this classic debate between you know gamers who say like freedom of speech, everyone should be able to do what they want, and then some mean guy who's saying you know violent video games are going to corrupt kids. Um, often mean woman, it's very gendered as well. But like the the fact that that is still sort of like framed as a real thing when the 
kind of topic around violent video games has been stuck on like doom and grand theft auto since 1999 is something that really no one ever talks about and really is because you know the only time that we see any game like that now we, we see them now they're sort of these things called boomer shooters that are sort of re- reflecting back on it but they're quaint in in some ways because the call of duty games are so unbelievably violent and like i don't again like if i'm not going to come come here and say like i'm I'm pro doom and I'm anti call of duty because of the violence represented. That's silly. Um, but what I find kind of like troubling or strange is the way that, and it starts with America's army, the, the first person shooter made and endorsed by the military as a recruiting tool. Um, you know, the, it starts with that, but like this, this, this idea of like realism of, of making people feel something about, you know, the violence that, um, justifies it or makes it moral or something like that that's a really weird and dangerous thing to say and 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 like not even something any of the positions would say in the old violent video games thing it was either this doesn't matter it's just a joke it's like fun and we're getting out our 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 stuff or it's corrupting kids no one was saying there's a moral there's a morality to violence and we need to like mobilize violence to make people ethical that's like that's beyond the pale but that's, of course, what we've been saying with the, these, these uh, you know, military shooters up to the point that, like, you know, I, I mentioned this in the book, like one of the most recent Call of Duty games had a had a uh, a white phosphorus ultimate, uh, like, a, like a legitimate war crime <laughs> thing you could use in multiplayer. The only reason people didn't use it was because it wasn't in meta, like it didn't work very well. No one was offended. No one was upset. So, you know, that distinction of like people get really upset if you have like a rocket launcher and you're shooting demons versus no one really cares if you're dropping white phosphorus on people is a really, really complicated thing. And I was like being able to tease it out and look at it from the long durée, like the long sort of like history of first person shooters was super helpful for me in figuring that out. Yeah. Uh, another thing that I would be curious um, to talk about, you know, and you, you even mentioned this at the back of the book that there's so many games that you couldn't cover. Um, but I would just be curious to hear what is, and you maybe just hit kind of like the, uh, like some of the three big systems, you know, Xbox, PlayStation, Nintendo. Um, what's a game from each one that has uh, sh- shaped you or impacted you? Okay. Yeah, sure. Um, so, you know, for for like probably one of the earliest games that impacted me was um, Chrono Trigger for the Super Nintendo. Um, I'm old, so I played that when it came out. Uh, you know, that that really was the first game that made me feel like immersed in the story and like taken in by like all the, you know, you can make a few choices in it. It has like a pretty compelling story. And I just was like, I was absolutely immersed in it. And for the longest time I would like, I really just wanted to play RPGs because of that. Um, I would say on PlayStation, huh? There's like a lot of options on PlayStation. Boy, there's like, Well, you know, I, I won't go for like the most the most relevant ones. I'll, I'll I'll give a variety, so I won't say any more RPGs. Although there's been a lot of those, um, I will say, you know, like on on PlayStation, one of the games that really really struck me was um, uh, um, uh, Demon Souls, which is the first Dark Souls game. It's only available on PlayStation Three and now PlayStation Five. Um, it is. It was the first time I was really able to see the way that a director, because I played Dark Souls before it, 
And it was the first time that I was able to see how the director takes like the bones of something that he or she cares about in a video game and develops it over time, right? Like the the actual sort of relationship with, with the directors and staff and developers and blah, 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 blah um, in games is so complicated because it's such a massive process. And so like, you know, the, the actual sort of like top-down uh, uh, position people can even have in, in gaming is so overblown, right? Like, um, how much did Hideo Kojima contribute to the Metal Gear, Metal Gear games? Hard to say, probably a lot, but also, you know, some of it was just because he came in and said, like, do this impossible thing and then left, right? Uh, you know, and Metal Gear Solid 2 would be my other choice for this. So, like, I'm not saying he's a bad director or bad, like, not good at his job. He's, he's a wonderful director, but it is it is this very complicated relationship to figure out like you know it's complicated in film it's more complicated in video games because of just the sheer task at hand um however with the souls games you can really see how hideteki miyazaki um kind of has a nascent idea in demon souls and then kind of shifts it into focus keeps certain things takes other things away and this is really common to see in film and literature and stuff like that. Like you can kind of look at early work and then compare it to later work and be like, how did they evolve? Like, what did they change? Um, I'd never done it in video games because no one ever does it in video games. It's not really something people are super interested in. Um, but uh, unless they're sort of talking about how brilliant someone is, but thinking about it just from like a, a, a position of like appreciation and, criti and criticism from like a, a productive way. Um, that was that was really kind of mind blowing for me to see that and to to kind of experience that. I also got to play it as the servers were shutting down on the original one. So I was I was playing it and I I saw you know on the night the server shut down, people put all these messages around that were like goodbye, like oh my heart is breaking and stuff like that, like within it, which was really kind of like it was cool. It was a neat experience. Um, and then for Xbox, I will say you know it's it's a it's it's kind of silly because like it is not my favorite of these games, but um, I will say I'll, I'll, I'll give it credit. I'll say Skyrim, um, and, and, and sort of like, uh, um, uh, uh, runner up there would probably be something like Fallout New Vegas because it's just such like a smart, smart game. Um, but then you're getting into games I played on PC and that's like, uh, so many night in the woods or, uh, you know, uh, oh, I'm not even gonna, yeah. Uh, there's so many, uh, but, um, you know, the, the thing that Skyrim sort of got me interested in was like the way that I, as an adult could like video games. Like it's not the sort of same obsessive thing that I could do when I was a kid. Right. Cause like, you know, at the time when that you did when you were a kid, like I only knew what it was like to play video games when you had 12 hours on a Saturday that you could just dedicate to it if you wanted. Right. Um, it's not what we get anymore. And like most adults don't get that. Even if they don't have kids, they have some kind of responsibility that they have to bother with. Right. Um, sometimes you can put that much time in, but usually you regret it afterwards. You're tired or you're busy or you've like neglected something. Um, and so Skyrim was something that like really sort of made me realize like, oh, you know, there's like, there's a real kind of like joy in finishing these tasks in this game and doing certain things. And like, yeah, it's like a Skinner box. And, and I, I think like Skyrim gets away from some of the the really more wild and and fascinating world building that happens in Morrowind, but like I didn't know that at the time. This is my first Elder Scrolls game, so like that and Oblivion, I guess. But like, you know, I was I was playing Skyrim from the perspective of like I'm just playing it myself. No one else is here. The kid is sleeping. I need a break, and it really was like fascinating to see how it branched out and like um, rewarded me in certain ways that I wasn't expecting. 
Um, you know, I don't necessarily know if like small missions and like little like dopamine hits are a good way to make a video game, like make it smart. Um, I do think it's an important dynamic to understand if you're going to understand modern video games. And that was really my, my sort of like crash course and how video games work post, you know, 2012, basically. Yeah. Uh, another question, uh, two, two other questions that I wanted okay. to ask you. The first one is this, um, what is, you know, either like a shift that you've seen in video games that is either because of like a reflection that has happened in the world, you know, in the mm. last couple of years, or what do you see? And, and I guess like maybe on the flip side, what's a shift in video games that you're like, Hey, this, this could have an influence, you know, going into, into the broader world as well. Yeah. So, um, the one I've seen, like, I, I will say, I think, uh, people they kind of like um i'll say like a light social progressivism um i talk about this a little bit in the book with wolfenstein um and the wolfenstein games the reboots are really fascinating versions of this because they are they're very much within like the tolerance of american liberalism um they're anti-nazi which you know uh is obviously like weirdly more controversial now than it was probably when it was made, but, you know, anti-Nazi in a certain way uh, that everyone can kind of agree with. They are, they, they, they are patriotic in the way that like you say, like my country may have flaws, but I love it kind of thing. It's like, it's, it's not controversial. Right. But it does present, you know, the kind of like white hegemony as a problem. Um, and, and in a lot of ways, it won a lot of people over because it was being socially progressive in that way, particularly the Wolfenstein II, the, the new Colossus. Um, similarly, you see stuff like, um, I think Means TV put out a game called Tonight We Riot um, about that. And, you know, there, there's like, there are games that are like explicitly sort of like they truck in the sort of left wing meme world, right? Um, that's something that you didn't see in video games and like prior to, I would say, 2016 prior to, to Trump being elected, I would say. Um, I, I don't want to say like it's ultra, like it's like, oh wow, we've like <laughs> these are the these are the good games. Um, I don't, you know, a lot of them don't really produce terribly much that's interesting to me. Um, I do think Wolfenstein's actually a, a kind of an exception to this. It's a it's a really interesting flashpoint. But I think, you know, the more interesting leftist games, if you want to talk about leftist games, are things like um uh that, that tell more compelling like and and articulated narratives like night in the woods or or fallout new vegas or um games that are sort of the more indie thing like um cart life which is just a, a brutal reminder of how much things cost in the society <laughs> but uh um you know like i i do think the shift happened because acknowledging the the sort of like dicey qualities of race and class in america became something that people were willing to do and something that people were rewarded for doing. Um, and that's a double-edged sword. Cause like, yes, that's really good. Um, but then also you get these games that do it by saying like, like a far, far cry five is, is the example of this where they said, Oh, this is going to be like white separatists, white militia people. And then they toned it down and it was just like people who are like, Hey, we don't like, you know, Democrats and basically, and then I was like, well, that doesn't really tell me anything. Like, it just makes me feel good instead of like actually saying something kind of interesting. Um, so I think, yeah, like that resistance mindset has entered video games and that's good because they have more sort of diversified themes. It also can convince people that there's no work to be done in terms of like bringing more compelling narratives forward. So I think that's the, that's the flip side, but also 
And if you want to think about it, kind of the, the moment of history we're into where, um, you know, acknowledging something is often seen as um, the, the end point as opposed to the beginning. Um, so I think that's something that happens in video games. I think the thing that I could see shifting, this is actually very topical, uh, funny enough. Uh, so today, uh, Microsoft uh, acquired Activism Blizzard for $70 billion. Um, sorry, $68 billion. I shouldn't, I shouldn't exaggerate. Um, but uh, it's massive, massive acquisition. And someone asked me about it. They were like, is this like new? Like, what's weird about it? I was like, well, no, it's not new. Like, Microsoft has been acquiring people for the last year. Like, they keep buying, buying up folks. Um, and the Epic store does too. It's sort of like, uh, an arms race that way. Um, but it is the biggest one so far. And so I think it's making people kind of reflect on the fact that like, if we get kind of a unified monopoly of gaming that might not look so good in the way that say like the Disney plus stuff kind of like retroactively refitting its old its old work to shave off the the jagged edges and stuff i think people are looking at that and saying like oh that's not like that's not good that that might not be good for us so i could see there being sort of like a newly um revitalized uh urge to push back against mainstream gaming in the indie scene because of that as a way of sort of like expressing you know counter microsoft or, or contra like big triple uh, a titles um i don't think that animus has been there for a long time and and for good reason like it's basically just a you know it's just a marketplace but um just like anywhere you know it has its ups and downs that way uh but i think this could really create kind of like an animus and an animosity that honestly could be quite productive sometimes like snotty uh angry you know punk uh uh leanings against authoritarian or corporatism can be pretty interesting as an artistic um uh i don't know as an artistic hedge so yeah. I, I'm, I'm hoping that happens that'd be kind of interesting yeah uh and i guess the last the last question that i want to ask you is what's a couple of games that have had such an impact on you that it like and this might be like too dramatic of a thing, but like changed how you view life or like impacted you mm -hmm. personally or like changed your perspective on something. Yeah. So I'll say like the one thing that, the, you know, there, there, there are those games out there. Um, it, yeah. It's tough. I think like, you know, I don't, cause I don't want to be too dramatic, but yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, I will say, I will say, so Metal Gear Solid 2 was a game that really surprised me. Um, because it made me realize how much, and it makes me think a lot now about how much perception by an audience can change a piece of art, um, after the fact and like change just the conversation around it, change everything that people think about it. Um, you know, there's this, there's this, um, you know, the, 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 the story about Metal Gear Solid 2 is like, it comes after Metal Gear Solid 1, um, of course, uh, but the, um, the lesson in Metal Gear Solid one that you learn, it's the same lesson that you've learned in the previous Metal Gear games is that like heroism as like a thing of like, you know, there are heroes in this world is a dead idea. Like it doesn't really work anymore. It doesn't really you know, accomplish anything anymore. Um, and, and Snake says at the end of the game, like, please just like, forget about me. I'm not just like, I'm going to be done. Like, I'm not a hero. No one's a hero here. Like, this is all just like a horrible mess that, you know, the, the people who are, you know, never going to 
feel any of the blowback made. And it's a, it's actually a very sort of like um, trenchant analysis, I, I think. Like he, Kojima does a good job with that. He brings that into Metal Gear Solid too. Snake's back, but he's sort of working for an NGO. He's looking for Metal Gears. And then his uh, the ship the tanker he's on famously gets shot down. And then for a lot of the rest of the game, you play as this new guy named Bride, who is live. Um, this is sort of live, long-haired, sort of a feet uh, ninja guy. And um, he uh, he's constantly sort of talking to his girlfriend and trying to figure out, like, oh, like, how do we, she's trying to remind him of a day that they that they know about. He's new to the program. He sort of is, like, unsure of himself, seems a little whiny. And he's totally different from Snake. And that, when I saw that, I was like, this is brilliant. Like, what a great idea. Like, what a good way to, like, actually put your money where your mouth is right like this is amazing what a what an amazing idea and people i mean snake comes back in the game even like but people were furious like people were furious um to the point that like the third game is takes like does not follow up the really interesting story that starts in the second game like doesn't take the cliffhanger and go forward with it it gives you old snake in like korea or russia in like the 1960s, late 1960s, it's it's Big Boss, and he comes down with Raiden's mask on, and then pulls it off, and it's Snake, and he goes, "Ah, kept you waiting, huh?" And it's like literally the game winks at you and says, "Like, don't worry, we won't do that again." And it is like that that blew my mind that there was like, you know, the that response to storytelling that they were just like, "We can't have people think this about us. We can't have another. We can't have a bomb on our hands." Um, we need to like completely say that everything we just did is bad when everything they just did was like brilliant. Like what's yeah. some of the best AAA storytelling I ever saw. So that really changed my understanding of how games and the market and their, it, it really led to a lot of what the book is actually, I would say like that moment where I realized what happened there. I was like, Oh wow. Like as an adult, it's like, this is, it's really, really remarkable. Um, I think the other game that probably changed a lot of the way that I, um, that I think about video games is, is an old Dreamcast game called um, uh, Jet Grind Radio, um, which is unlike any of the games we've, we've talked about today, but like it is, it's a, it's basically a game where you, uh, you rollerblade around or skateboard, or I think it's just rollerblades, um, but it's sort of like Tony Hawkish, like you do grind tricks and stuff like that. And then you spray paint walls. Right. Um, and it's this beautiful sort of like, and anti-authoritarian again sort of in that like snotty punk way um and it's just about putting up like graffiti it can get kind of difficult but it's never too hard it is just like the, a chill aesthetic experience and it grabbed me more than like any other game had and maybe since and i would just play like i i would beat it and then start it again and beat it and start it again just play it and play it and play it and play it and like I can still sort of remember like specific moments and specific spaces in it. And it, it really was the first game that like presented like an aesthetic whole, like Katamari Damacy is another game that sort of did this for me too, where like I can imagine the scenes in those games and I can sort of see the places and see what they're going for as like a totality and thinking about games like that, as opposed to like, Oh, you know, it's like level two in Mario or like, Oh, here's like, <laughs> You know, like I know all the places on the map in Zelda, right? Like thinking about the game as like a totality, it's like a place in a space or whatever was, um, I don't know, that was changing for me. That was, that was really, really important for me. Yeah. Well, Trevor, I know that people are going to want to pick up story mode, the book that just came out and continue so. to learn uh, from you and everything. Where's the best place for people to go to do all those things? 
So right now it's probably Amazon. Um, it's just to look up story mode on Amazon. For whatever reason, we're having a hard time. Uh, I guess it's a good problem. We're having a hard time keeping them in stock places. Um, but you can ask your local bookseller. Um, ask your local library. They'll they'll probably pick up a couple copies. Um, you can. Uh, I think you can probably get it on back order at books uh, bookshop.org or Powell's. Um, but it is at Amazon. And if you want to ask me anything, I'm at h e g e l b o n on Twitter. Um, and my my you can always email me. Um, uh, it's just it's just my name, Trevor.strunk at Gmail. So feel free to drop me a line. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being on the podcast today and thanks for doing the work. Thanks for having me. Thanks for thanks for doing your work as well. This is really fun. Okay. So I think coming out of that conversation, there's really two things that uh that really, you know, it I guess imprinted on me, impacted me, whatever you want to say. Um, the first is this is how uh video games, you know, learned from culture and paid attention to what was happening or not you know, some video games paid attention to what was happening in culture. And then they ended up creating games and stories that spoke to those things as well. You know, we, we talked a lot about it in the horror genre in that of how our, um, you know, our, they, they changed our, I was going to say they didn't change our fears, but how they designed the game uh, and what they focused on in the horror genre changed based on the cultural moment of of what was um what was our greatest fears at the time and so thinking things thinking through things like that and realizing man how how can we you know specifically you know thinking um you know in the world that i live in 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 the church of man how can we better speak the moment in a way that um that people can hear and that they can listen and that we can have uh, productive conversations around that as well. And I think the second thing that he talked about is the difference between story and experience and how you can have a great experience and yet there not be much of a story and you can have um, a good story, but if it ain't a great experience, then it doesn't really matter. And just realizing that whenever both of those things are able to work together, it, it creates I keep using the word impact, um, but it makes a greater difference. It has a it has a greater effect on us if we're able to combine those things. And so that's some of the things that uh, got me thinking for this. I would love to hear from you and some of the things you're thinking about, some of the things you're learning, whether that be from this episode, other episodes, or just things that you're learning in general. And the best way to reach out to me is, uh, you know, Learners Corner Podcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. There, if you enjoyed this episode, the best way to make sure that you don't miss any episode, subscribe and follow. And if you leave a rating, I would appreciate that as well on Spotify or Apple or whatever. Um, yeah, wherever wherever you listen to podcasts at. I think that's all that I got for today. And so thanks so much for listening to the Learner's Corner. Thanks to Sam Massey for you know providing the music, Garrett Oler for doing the editing, for Trevor for being on the podcast. And that's all that I got for today. My name is Caleb Mason. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing.